0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to uh, Talks with Tony. I have my dear friend, the hit man, David Foster, Canadian musician, arranger, record producer, music executive, chaired a record company, Verve Records. I mean, his discography is unbelievable. He's an amazing man, uh, foundation, uh, great father, uh, you name it. But most importantly, an amazing friend to me.
1: It's great to be with you, Tony, my dear friend. Born and
0: raised in Victoria, British Columbia. Tell people about Victoria and British
1: Columbia. I've commiserated or hung with many, many fellow Canadians uh, in Los Angeles here and around the world. And we, maybe you as uh, coming from uh, Asia and specifically Malaysia, maybe you feel the same way, but um, when we Canadians get together, uh, Wayne Gretzky and... Paul Anka and and, uh, it used to be Alan Thicke, my dear friend, and uh, just us Canadians, we we sort of felt like we had a secret weapon by being Canadian. Uh, There was a party that somebody held in Malibu before COVID and it was Dan Aykroyd and Martin Short and Eugene Levy and all these heavyweight comedians and they're all Canadian. And uh, I was along for whatever reason. And it just, it's this secret weapon we feel we have. Maybe because we were taught that we had to work twice as hard to be taken half as seriously and maybe you can relate to that, um, yeah. because America is is the one that we all want to conquer, uh, and certainly many Canadians have, and, and we've used, uh, me in particular, I've used growing up on an island, Vancouver Island, as a weapon for me.
0: And you, you were one of seven kids, the only boy. Spoiled rotten, were you?
1: I was, but of course, I, it wasn't my fault. I mean, my, my I tell this story often <laughs> but, and it's, it's tragic now, and. Thankfully, all my sisters, my six sisters, they're um, they they they're crazy about me. I'm not going to lie. They, we all get along so well, and we just have the best time and never argue. But my mother, God rest her soul, man, she would get up in the morning and give my sisters a piece of toast, and she'd make me bacon and eggs. And I'm not kidding. Every morning, they got nothing, and I got everything. And I think it pissed my dad off, too, but, but that was just the way it was. So I grew up uh, entitled within a a family that had no money. We weren't poor, but we had no money, but as entitled as you could be with a father making $90 a week.
0: You you know, you you talk about your mom and, you know, my mom was a major, major part of my life. She was a musician. I don't know if I ever told you that. She was a piano player. Uh, You know, in the early days, when people used to come out to Malaysia, she invited, she just pick up the phone and say, come to our house, I'll organize a party for you. And one of the great people that came was Ray Charles. And wow. uh, till I die, I remember her jamming with Ray Charles on the same piano and and, and she was a major influence in my life. And uh, I didn't realize until I, I, you know, I've got some notes on you because we've known each other on a different time level that your mother was such a, a big part of your life. You know, at four, you had perfect pitch, David. Yeah. I've never known he, anyone who's had perfect pitch actually at four years old.
1: Well, you know, perfect pitch is, is an indication that you should go in the music business, but it's not like, oh, you got perfect pitch, you're, you're going to do well. Uh, but it's an indication that you should try to do well. And the story goes that my mother was dusting the piano like this. Yeah. And she hit that note, and I yelled out from the other room, that's an E. And, of course, uh, she didn't know music, but my father did. He was a really good amateur piano player. She called right. him at work, and she said, Mori, you got to get home right away. There's something weird with your kid. Um, and so my father actually came home and uh, tested me out. And in fact, I had perfect pitch, which means to your listeners that uh, I can tell what a note is uh, without seeing it. But it's, it doesn't mean I'm a genius. It just means that it's something I'm born with, like being born left-handed. But, but how at four years old do you think you got that? I mean, that is remarkable. But my, I think my father had sat me when I was four and taught me a little bit about the piano, like where the where the notes are.
0: What kind of music did he play at
1: home? Yeah. My father uh, played um, a a couple of different styles, but what he was really good at was, uh, we call it stride piano, which is sort of like honky-tonk piano. Oh, yeah. So he taught me how to do this. You know, this this bar (laughs) room. Oh, yeah. He taught me how to play that style. but Then he also had a a softer side where he taught me songs like Dream a little dream of me. Yeah. Um, He was quite accomplished uh, as an amateur. And and your first song that you remember playing? Um, I don't remember my first song. I remember in the fifth grade, uh, I had a music teacher who didn't like me and refused to give me an A. an A, And I know I deserved an A because I right. was good. Yeah. And I said, what do I have to do to get an A in your class? In your class, And she said, what you have to do is write a song and play it for the whole school. So my friend uh, and I wrote a song called The Foswood Blues, so original. Probably <laughs> some bullshit, you know. But yeah. we performed it in front of the whole school, which incidentally, Mm-hmm. Gained me a little popularity, which I'm not going to lie <laughs> was kind of cool. But she still gave me a B, and to this day I don't know why. She's still alive. I should well, track her down and find out why you should. she even remembers. You should. Yeah.
0: Piano was always going to be it for you. Did you ever? I've never asked you. Do you play any other instruments? I've never even seen you on the keyboards.
1: Well, under okay. the heading of um, influencers in your life, you know, I, I had a band teacher, and I say to any kids that happen to be watching you. Any kids that decide they want to take band, but they don't want to do it because they don't think it's cool. I don't know. Maybe maybe band is cool now. Band, for me, was a lifesaver. Did you take band? Yeah. Yeah. I certainly did. and, and, And I had a band teacher, Tony, who recognized that I had talent. And he let me learn a different instrument every three months. Now, I didn't get good at any of the instruments, but I'd play the trumpet for three months, then the trombone, then the saxophone and the clarinet and the flute and I was never any good on them but I was still as good or better than all the rest of the kids even after just a couple of months of practicing so I got to learn the instruments of the orchestra which was invaluable he gave me something invaluable over those four years that I went to uh, high school Uh, or three years actually I didn't graduate but uh, that's another story
0: (laughs) if there was another instrument that you would love to be as accomplished as
1: you are in the piano what would it be it would be the guitar, because the guitar player gets to be out front and yeah. like, just do his thing. The keyboard player, they can't be out front, they're stuck in the back, you know, yeah. kind of a ham. Uh, and also yeah. the guitar is sexy as hell. Yeah. And uh, But it's a mystery to me. I, I, I know four chords and that's it. And I know you play a little guitar. Right?
0: Yeah, I play a little guitar, yeah.
1: Yeah, But it's, Banner, kind of, uh, it's hard. I, find- I know you can relate to this. You you set the goalpost and then you immediately go past the goalpost and you have to reset it again. So when I was 12 or 13, I just, you know, imagined that I would be having a job in a nightclub somewhere and I would play every night of the week and I'd make a living that way. And it, yeah. that's all I wanted. But then because we have this thirst and this desire to do better and be best and be great, uh, the goalpost kept moving. And by the time I was 19, 18, I wanted a hit record more than anything. Uh,
0: wow. And... Do you remember the first record
1: you bought? Uh, I remember the first record that I was given. And yeah. uh, my sister worked at a coffee shop and there was a, a jukebox there. And every week or two, uh, the guy would come and clean out the jukebox and give away the old records, because you know, the top 40 kept changing even back then. Yeah, yeah. And she brought home to me a 45 of a song called... Um, uh, um, Everybody's gonna have a good time up there. By Pat Boone. Do you know who Pat Boone? Is? Oh, Pat Boone. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was my very first record that I got to play on a little five-dollar uh, record player, and um, I've since, of course, <coughs> become friends with Pat. Yeah. Over the years, and we've we've hung out, we've had dinners together, and he was a big, big star back then. Yeah. He was handsome, and you know, and had a lot of hit records, and he was acted in a lot of movies. And uh, it was great to tell my sister as a full circle, hey, by the way, th- that first record you gave me that influenced me, uh, Pat Boone, he's now a friend of mine. And I've told Pat the story, and Pat has told that story in concert when I bid at his concert. So it's kind of a full circle. Well,
0: that, that's, that's kind of cool. I mean, I, my first record, I persuaded my dad to buy me the Supremes, the, a go-go. And I was five years old um, at that time. Wow. And I couldn't. my mother was a big influence. My dad, my dad was kind of, he bought all these Reader's Digest set you know he was a big Burt Bacharach man and Ray Conniff Jr and all that my mother was into you know Carol RB. King and Dionne Warwick and, and, and all. she had a huge cross section so I grew up in there but and in one of the evenings I, I heard on the radio the Supremes but I've never got a chance to meet Dinah Ross or, or any of them
1: have you? not yet not yet have Yeah, you? I, I, yeah, I have I've I've um, is I've, she a diva uh, or is she nice? she's great She's great. And just actually recently she reached out to me during COVID to ask about doing a song together, and uh, we never got it together. And I I, I did do an arrangement for her on one song years ago, and uh, she's always been really nice to me. And, you know, there's certain singers, Tony, you know this so well from being in the music business for so long. Um, There's certain singers that love musicians and recognize good musicians from bad musicians. I believe that Diana Ross is one of them. That recognizes good musicianship. There's singers out there that have uh, hit records, great tours, they're doing well. They really don't know the difference, and I know this for a fact because one singer in particular who's uh, uh I work with who um is amazing, has a huge career, and uh he said, I want you to hear my band. I said, Okay, great, you know, that's the band you want to take on the road. Yeah, I got to Yeah, these guys are great, and they were awful. They were just terrible <laughs> musicians, but he didn't know. And yet his own career is amazing, and he has yeah. great taste, but couldn't pick good musicians. There and we go. Who it is, though? I kind of can guess. Um, no, you can't But can anyway, guess. going
0: back, you, just last question in your childhood. You said you had the perfect childhood.
1: What does that What does that mean? I, it means I'm bullshitting. I think <laughs> because uh, my wife uh, has busted me on that a couple of times, just yeah. from what she's heard from my sisters and. Um, You know, my father was working all the time and seven kids and no money. And and so he was quite distant with me. Um, Yeah. Not because he was mean, just because that's the way he was raised. And uh, my mother was um, strict. Uh, So I guess it wasn't a perfect childhood, but it's the way I'm going to leave it. That's what I'm going to say. It was perfect because it felt perfect to me.
0: Chuck Berry, 1966, a backup band for Chuck Berry, what was that like?
1: You know, it was a classic sort of, uh, I ain't going on until I see the money, I want the cash, that kind of thing. You read about it and you don't think it's true, but it actually was true, and that he did not pay attention to us at all. He didn't know our names, he didn't care, he didn't hang with us, he didn't drive with us, he didn't do anything. He'd just walk on the stage, plug his guitar in, do his thing, scowl at us when we didn't play it the way he wanted and then got off stage we never we never hung out with him not once in months wow
0: that's strange isn't it yeah. that band what was it called and, and how did that get together
1: yeah the band <laughs> you're gonna love this tony <laughs> we called ourselves the canadians how about that can you imagine the guys in suits trying to make it with pink floyd and Jimi hendrix and it was the time of You know, uh, all that going on in Carnaby Street and drugs and LSD and Sgt. Pepper. And here we come, we call ourselves the Canadians. Do you think we stood a chance? Not a chance. Uh, I went back to Canada, uh, put the band Skylark together with my uh, then uh, uh, wife BJ, put the band Skylark together, and we headed down to Los Angeles. And through her contacts, uh, we got a record deal with with Capitol Records, uh, and lo and behold, We put out a song and it became a massive hit song. Wildflower. uh, Let her cry for she's a lady. Wildflower. Um, And uh, that was kind of a good feeling. Top ten in 1973. You you know this to be true. The only thing harder than getting a hit record is what? (laughs) Getting the second hit record.
0: Exactly. And
1: we didn't. We were we were a one hit wonder.
0: but it it must have been great. Should we hear a little bit more of it, David?
1: Yeah. Let her cry, for she's a lady. Let her dream, for she's a child. Let the rain fall down upon her. She's a free and gentle flower growing wild. I can't sing, but uh, you get the idea. You can sing. You can sing. So, um, Skylark disbanded, and then what happened? I became a a piano player for hire, and I got gigs for five bucks an hour playing for singers, auditions, and this uh, one singer auditioned for a show called The Rocky Horror Show, and she wanted me to go play for her. Uh, Have you heard of that show? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. So, I went to the audition and played for her. And she didn't do that well, and didn't get the gig. But the musical director came over to me and said, uh, "Hey, wh- where'd you come from?" And it was kind of like right out of the movies. I said, "Well, I'm from Canada, but I'm I'm here now." And I didn't mention that I'd had a hit record because I was now at the very, very bottom of the rung again. I, you know, gone all the way down to the five dollars an mm. hour piano mm. player with a new baby, Amy. Uh, and uh, he said, "Well, you know." How would you like to be in the band of the Rocky Horror Show at the Roxy Theater on Sunset yeah. Boulevard? I was like, hell <laughs> yeah. So I got the gig and the girl I was playing for didn't. And that was kind of the turning point for me. Yeah. BJ uh, also used to say, she said, the microphone comes past you once. You yeah. either speak into it or it goes past. And it probably never comes again. Yeah. That, that's a lesson for everyone.
0: I always say, don't try, you don't know. You're too shy, it's gonna just walk right past you.
1: But and, and then so. you got to balance that though with with bravado and ego, right? You can't be too pushy Yeah, right. Correct. Correct.
0: Great. So how long were you in the Rocky Horror Show? Uh,
1: we did it for one year and two months and uh, It was great because The guys in the band some of them were studio musicians And so I got to sort of meet that whole crew and every night there was Stars in the audience. It was a club but every yeah. night you'd see Michael Jackson in the audience, you'd see Elizabeth Taylor in the audience, you'd see Clint Eastwood. The they all came to see a guy named Tim Curry who was starring in the Rocky Horror yeah. And he was yeah. amazing. And they all came, every night. It was like, you just look out from the band, uh, we were up high, and, and, and you just see all these stars. It was so much fun.
0: Yeah. You know, How did you, you know, you, you wanted to have a hit record, you kind of slowly moved into composing and producing. It's
1: funny. It's funny that you mentioned the hit record because I I did it. I did a smart thing. I think I I left the hit record at the door. Yeah. So I didn't like wallow in the fact that, hey, look at me. I got a hit record and now I'm shit. You know, I didn't I didn't I put the hit record away in a drawer somewhere because that's pretty great to get a hit record. And yeah, you know, you have more chance of getting killed by lightning than having a hit record. Right. So it was pretty great. But I, I put it in a drawer, started all over because I, I had my sights set on being a studio musician, being a producer, and an arranger, and uh, in that Rocky Horror period, I met a drummer named Jim Keltner, very famous drummer. Yeah. Who played with the, he played with the Beatles, he played with the Stones, he played with Eric Clapton, and uh, he took a liking to me, and one day I was sitting in my apartment, and I get a call, hello, hello, this is Joel Harrison. I mean, I just about came apart, because the Beatles were it for me. The, yeah. the Beatles were it. It. Yeah. They changed my life too when I, when She Loves You first came out. I was like, yeah. I was thirteen. I was like, Wow! I want to do what that is. I want to make music like that. So he invited me down through Jim Kellner, this great drummer, and uh, that started me off on meeting all the right studio musicians, and started me off as a studio musician. Uh, and I did two albums with George, and I did Rod Stewart, and and uh, The Fifth Dimension, and oh, I played on so many hit records, Dolly Parton, and. Uh, Glenn Campbell, and it was just an endless stream, but, and it's a big but, I saw the generation of studio musicians that had gone before me, because mm-hmm. I was playing with them, they were my heroes. Yeah. yeah. And I saw them go from single scale, to double scale, to triple scale, to double scale, to single scale. And I thought, this is not going to be my fate. You know, have a good ride for five, ten years, and then... Can you explain to you
0: everyone know, what single scale, double scale, triple scale is?
1: I think at the time, uh, three-hour session as a studio, studio musician would be uh maybe 80 bucks yeah and double scale would be 160 triple scale would be uh, 240 right so you can make triple scale you can make you know a, damn near a thousand bucks a day mm-hmm. at the height of my studio musician time which was only three years long before i decided i would give it all up and try to be a producer i was making six figures a year and this was in the 70s wow so i was really you know bought a house and yeah, i mean i was really i drove it was driving a mercedes and i was really golden but i knew it was a dead end so i made a conscious decision to quit being a studio musician stop taking calls and produce and as you can imagine that first year of producing records um, people weren't clamoring to have me produce records for them so i produced three albums in the first year or year and a half i got paid five thousand dollars for each of them so i went from 120 grand a year to 15 grand or ten mm-hmm. grand a year, um, but I was determined. And the first three albums that I produced all stiffed. All three were they? Of them the, who the, were they? Well, know? exactly. <laughs> 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 they were, they weren't famous people. Thank God, because I wouldn't want that on my resume. But uh, they were just artists that I liked that that, that could not get. They couldn't attract big time producers, so they came to me. Um, one got one album was Bill Chaplin, who ended up I ended up putting him in the group Chicago. But um, they all stiffed. And I was just about ready to give up. I thought, wow, I thought I was going to be good at this. But I think I suck at this. My problem was I was too much of a musician. And I wasn't listening and paying attention to the songs and the lyrics. I was too busy trying to get like the hot track with the hot drummer. and You can relate to this, right? People don't care about that. They care about songs. And I didn't know that. And I was just about ready to give up. But by now I was writing good songs. And then Earth, Wind & Fire came into my life. Then Alice Cooper. Then Cheryl Lynn. Then the group Chicago. And then and then the, the ball was just rolling faster than I could grab it. But can you
0: explain to people out there what a producer does? Why is he so important
1: to, to the
0: record, right?
1: Well, I can tell you that... Um, you, I'm sure you would agree with this. If you ever decided to make a record, and you could, you can sing, you can play a little guitar, and you love music, you probably wouldn't want to do it on your own. You'd probably want to have a producer. Why? Because you want somebody to bounce off of. And the buck has to stop with somebody. And an artist is too close to themselves. There's very few artists that can produce themselves. Um, I, I can't think of any. Well, Prince. Prince produced himself and did a damn yeah. good job. But yeah. even the Beatles, you know, they had George Martin. And yeah. and uh, so... See, it's somebody to bounce off of and to, you know, be the final say, especially when it's a group, like the group. It's, like it's the CEO of the
0: record, right? It's, it's the boss.
1: Yeah. And uh, I was young and arrogant, and um, it was kind of my way or the highway. And mm. uh, if you watch the documentary, you'll see, I, I begged the, the director, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but I, I begged the director to, uh, I said, you got to interview the group Chicago, because they hate my guts. Um, and then when he got them on camera they kind of caved they were like sort of nice you know yeah well he was kind of of a bully in the studio but i mean we went from selling a hundred thousand to selling seven million so it kind of all worked out great but but in fairness uh speaking of chicago i took them down my road not their road and i understand why they were pissed off even though we had huge success
0: exactly what do you have to do in the studio to be a producer i mean what does it take to be a great producer and you know chicago is going to be a a big part of this show, um, and you know, how do you exert? How, how do you become a great producer? And, and well, what, what are what are the things that? The first kind thing of, I say when
1: when I'm speaking to at you know USC or UCLA or you know colleges on music or Berkeley. One of the first things I say actually is, anybody that puts up their hand and asks me how they can become a record producer will never be one. Right? Yeah. How do I? How do I run an airline? How do I yeah. buy an airline and run an airline? That's the well, same question. I you, so how do you become a millionaire?
0: Yeah, don't think you're, you're never gonna that. Yeah, if you
1: have to ask, you're not gonna do it. It's by, by osmosis. It's by yeah. just living and breathing it, right? But um, the producer basically uh, is in charge of everything. Uh, you know, if you have a strong, strong artist, then you're going to have lots of fights. Uh, but my motto is n- no compromising. So if the artist, if the singer wants the note to go up, and I want it to go down, it'll do one or the other, but it will not go into the middle because the mm. compromise breeds mediocrity. So uh, sometimes it's a constant battle. If the artist is weak, I get to uh, I get to make the record exactly the way I want. Case in point, I could give you many examples, but case in point, Josh Groban's first album. Right. He was I not weak. That. He was just he was 18. Yeah. He didn't know anything. He was just happy to be there. So I made the record that I wanted to make. And got him to sing every note that I wanted him to sing, right? right? He would be the first to admit this. As his popularity grew and his and his star rose by the third album, he was like, no, we're going to do it this way. I don't like that song. No, I don't, you know. And <laughs> again, I'm preaching to the choir with you because you've dealt with this your whole life. And you can't stifle that because once they get a taste of fame and once they are, in fact, famous and they're making loads of money, they're not going to always listen to you and nor should yeah. they. I mean... If I was producing Madonna, uh, which I have done, but if I had been her number one producer, I probably would still have her making disco records, which would have been awful. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: And let's go to the producer. You find the songs, you agree the songs, you find the musicians, you get them to sing the way you want them to sing. That's the perfect scenario?
1: Yeah. And, and um, uh, yes, picking the songs is, is, as I found out, very more important than I thought it was uh, and hiring the right musicians and uh, being a psychologist and a psychiatrist and a mom and a dad and a brother and a sister and you know, you've got to get a great vocal like whatever it takes to get a great vocal um, that's your mission and to make the artist be comfortable and to, this is going to sound funny but to placate them because when they come with ideas that you don't like you can't just go, that sucks you got to go, okay, well let's try that Knowing all the time that you hate her idea or his idea, and then sometimes they have great ideas. And
0: give me an idea that you hated. Just it doesn't have to be the an honest. idea of an idea.
1: No, an, an idea, idea of but, an artist
0: coming to you and, and saying, "I want to do this," and you're like, "Oh no, that sucks." And
1: uh, well, there was a. I go back to Chicago again. Well, I could use plenty of examples, but um, there was a song that I didn't write called "Hard Habit to Break," which ended up mm-hmm. going to number one mm-hmm. for Chicago. They really really hated the song and did not want to do it mm-hmm. and I said you know we just had a standoff I said you're gonna do this song you're gonna do this song I made a demo and sang all the parts myself to show mm-hmm. them how what a great song it was they still didn't believe me uh, but I made them do it and it became right.
0: a huge hit there you go so uh, so you, you had your three records that didn't happen then what happened Chicago came along well Earth, Wind & Fire first oh yeah with
1: my my friends Bill Champlin and Jay Graydon, we wrote uh, the song oh and after the love is gone played it for Maurice White through a friend of mine who got me to Maurice White right and he became a great mentor to me the the leader of Earth, Wind & Fire and he said uh, I love that song we're going to record it and I went really when he went tonight (laughs) and it was just one of the great great moments (laughs) for me and that led to a five or ten year relationship with him where I did quite a few albums with him and, and uh, including that whole album, the I Am album, yeah. uh, I yeah. co-wrote with Maurice most of the songs on that record. Uh, it had September on it and Boogie Wonderland and uh, After the Love is Gone. It was a power-packed album and it was just, I, I was just in the big time. I felt like I was in the big time. Yeah,
0: so that was the first song with Earth and Wind Fire and then you developed this relationship with Earth and Wind what was it like working with the guys? They just looked really nice guys. And of course, you know, I was lucky enough, thanks to you, that Philip Bailey played in our wedding. Uh, yes, he did. In the south of France, which unfortunately you couldn't make it that day because you had a concert. But uh, that was a special night with Eric and 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 the gang. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Stephen Bishop, yeah. All, my, all my kind of... Well, really you, you've, you've come across many Philip Baileys in your life that would all love to do favors for you um, in your time in the, in the music business but um, you know with every group nine members there's always dissension and there's always problems and Earth, Wind & Fire was not exempt from some of that you know but Maurice White was the boss and the horn players might have complained a little and uh, I think shortly after the I Am album a couple of the guys quit or were fired good good musicians um, so they, they, that, they that group became fractured because um, you just can't god i mean chicago they used to have a meeting about having a meeting
0: when you're writing a song like the songs you've just played and when you reeled out the i am songs i mean those are just just my hair stands to be honest that, that was yeah. one hell of an album yeah he just for the for the layman out there which i would consider myself one in this aspect how do you get how do you write a song how do you sit down and come out with those those amazing tunes
1: well first of all i've had co-writers for most of my songs so we have to give a lot of credit to them too but in the case of after the love is gone specifically i was in barry gordy's office the uh the the guy who founded motown yeah and i was playing him actually the album the first album i produced one of the stiffs and he listened to a lot of it he gave me a lot of time and he said you know I, i i don't really hear any great songs here and I lied to him, and I swear to God this is true. I lied to him, and I said, no, Mr. Gorey, wait, I, I have other songs. And he went, like what? And I went, well, and I walked over to the piano, and as God is my witness, I sat down, and, and oh, and after the love has gone, the chorus fell out in real time through me. I'd never thought about that before. It just oh. came out. Oh, wow. And he was like, whoa, where did that come from? Because it's kind of an undeniable song. And then I hooked up with Bill Champlin and Jay Graydon to finish it, the verses and the lyrics, and all the rest of the lyrics. But it was a gift from God. So, Tony, I have a question for you. Given the choice, right this second, if you could be the chairman of Universal Music worldwide, like our friend Lucian is, or be the chairman of AirAsia? Don't be politically correct, just answer truthfully. What would you choose? You know the answer. I'll take no, I, Well, I, I, I know you have this, such a love of music that it would be... I'll take Lucian's
0: job in a second. You would. Uh, I You'd You'd be good at it, too, by the way. You know, it's... I mean, I love what I built. And, you know, I I, mean, I got a lot more to do in AirAsia. But you can't... Music is something else, right? And to, to yeah. meet you guys, to, to just listen to after love has gone, you know, two, 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 three bars of it. Uh, you know, it's amazing because you can build, you can create businesses, but then meeting someone and making them a star and listening to a great song and seeing the joy music brings. I see yeah. joy because we've allowed people to fly everywhere, right? We came up with this, now everyone can fly. And I do my best to bring music to the airline as much as possible. I we're know saying, you we, do. We we're <laughs> we're set up a small do. little record company, but I'd be lying if I could be Lucian. I've taken an, in. But the interesting thing, one of the interesting
1: things, one of the many interesting things about you, Tony, is that you will find a way, and are finding a way through AirAsia, to diversify and get right back into music. You've got your food business going. You got the delivery service going. You got music with Red Records. You got you know, you're, you're, you're gonna end up doing it all. I mean, you're unstoppable.
0: Well, <laughs> we're gonna give it a try. That's for sure. The similarity of the two of us is that we love a challenge and we never we never give up. So tell us the Chicago story. That's,
1: you know, that's a big story. Yeah. So they played me their 13 songs. I was so excited. Just the Chicago in a room and I'm sitting in the center and they're all, there's Jimmy Penko on trombone, there's Peter Satira and there's Robert Lamb and this is like too much. Uh, and the songs were fucking awful. <laughs> I mean awful. And at the end of it, they're like, so what do you think? And I was making notes. I said, well guys, honestly uh, I can't produce an album with these songs. If I'm gonna produce you, we're gonna start all over again and I'm gonna go to all of your houses and I'm gonna co-write with you and we're gonna write 13 new songs because these songs aren't good enough. You've forgotten the greatness of Chicago. You've forgotten how great you were. Yeah. But it just so happened that Peter Satira and I hit it off. And so right. I ended up being the piano player and the bass player, because Peter didn't want to play bass anymore, so I played keyboard bass, and I was the arranger and the co-writer and the producer. So I ended up really being a, a, a big part of the group, and Peter and I really hit it off, and, and the rest of the group didn't like that too much. Uh,
0: didn't like the, uh, the closeness you two had. Yeah, Pre-David Foster, pre-David Foster,
1: what was their biggest song? Do you think? Saturday in the Park. Uh, how yeah. about if if you leave me now, you take away the biggest part of me. Woo. I can't sing <laughs> it, but uh, I mean they had so many hits. Uh, Twenty-five or six to four. Yeah. Uh, beginnings. dan Trombones. dan You know. I mean, I knew every lick. I was such a fan. I was the perfect person to produce them. Yeah.
0: Maria, I put a note here, which I found a bit funny. You are the Yoko Ono
1: of Chicago.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd like to think I was the George Martin of Chicago, not the Yoko Ono, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Ed, look, just tell everyone just quickly because I've seen it in your house. How many Grammys have you got?
1: Coincidentally, I'm not sure how many I, I, I No, I have 16 <laughs> and I've lost 33 times I know all the numbers there you
0: go now you you told me the one that really pissed you off that you thought you should have won tell us about that
1: yeah well I mean well no uh I think you're thinking about the Oscars I've lost all three times at the Oscars oh yeah 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 um, yeah, yeah yeah and and I lost for uh, a song called The Prayer with Andrea Bocelli and Celine Dion when that kind of hurt I lost, strangely, I lost to Whitney on that. I lost with Whitney on The Bodyguard because we were nominated for two songs in The Bodyguard and I think they canceled each other out. So that one I sort of understood. But the one that really hurt me was that Peter Satir and I wrote a song called The Glory of Love. Yeah. Uh, And you know. Can you play that? I am a man who would fight for your honor. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. So we lost to uh, Berlin. Take my breath away. Hate that yeah. song now. <laughs> it actually was a good song. Yeah, I know, but, uh, I, but it's okay. I, I might get. An, I might get another chance. There you go,
0: David. Yeah. Do you think music um, lasted longer in the older days? Do you know, you, you play September now. You play After the Love. You play the Chicago songs, and they're just. Yeah. Timeless, right? When you think of music today, do you I, think
1: in twenty years' time no, people are going to? I gonna... think you're wrong, and I'll tell you why.
0: Yeah,
1: it's hard to imagine that kids thirty years from now are going to put their arms around each other to a Drake song, the Telephone song, and go, "Oh, that's our song." It's hard to imagine that, yeah. but it's going to happen. Yeah, they're not going to put their arms around. Uh, well, a Chicago song is playing, or well, a Bobby Brown song is playing. They're gonna put their arms around each other while a Drake song is playing, or a Bieber song, or a Rihanna song, or an Ed Sheeran song. It's just—it's the way of the world, man. And because we're older now, we think that our shit is greater, better than theirs. But it's not. Mm. It—you mm. it, it, know—there's plenty of great music out there, right? It's centered around simpler chord patterns. Um, it's not—the music isn't as complex as it was. Yeah. But if you think about it, music in the '60s was all dominated around four chords too. thousand hits with that chord progression yeah so now we're in a different four chords uh and but it's working and and kids today that are 16 and 17 when they turn 40 and 50 they're going to reminisce about their stuff they're not going to reminisce about our stuff that's true
0: that that is true i think but i i don't know i feel songs lasted longer in our era i mean they're great songs drake's amazing and you know chris brown and all these guys are making some incredible stuff yeah Bieber's um, making some great music too. He's special.
1: He's yeah, he, re- is.
0: he He really is. He really is yeah. special. Do you think producer, artist, I mean, you you know them all, right? Can they become friends? You
1: certainly can, and I can give you plenty of examples of people in my life that became and still are social friends. Um, and Michael Bublé being maybe at the top of that list. I mean, he called me yesterday. He checks in regularly. He saw... Uh, my wife on American Idol last week and called me to say man your wife was amazing and and we we FaceTime on a truly on a regular basis Uh, Josh, not quite so much Josh Groban but um, plenty of uh, socializing there Bocelli, we are really good friends Natalie Cole and I were really good friends Donna Summer and I were really good friends so yeah it is possible
0: David, you set up your own record company. That's when I got to know you. Tell, tell mm-hmm. us about that.
1: Uh, 143 Records. And in retrospect, like everything else... Tony, did you always want to do that?
0: Did, did you always want I to did. Own, your own Yeah.
1: I did, but um, if you... You know... If you had been a little uh, more forward with me and giving me a little better advice, <laughs> I probably wouldn't have sold it. Um, I mean, uh-huh. I had... Josh Groban, Michael Bublé, the Cores. remember yeah, the Coors? Yeah, of course. Yeah, we did,
0: we did uh, that together. Just, I broke it in Asia first.
1: Those, yes, we did. Just those three yeah. artists alone would be a yeah. uh, multi, you know, a couple of hundred million yeah. dollar record company Yeah. You know? Yeah. But um, it, you know, I, my business savvy is not as good as my musical savvy, and uh, it's okay because we don't. God doesn't give with both hands. Yeah. When I when I
0: met you, you had this wonderful house in in Malibu. You had your studio. You had, yeah. If I remember right, a train that could take you up to the t- top yeah, of the house. Was, am I right? Yeah.
1: Do I remember that correctly? You're right. Yeah, it was a 22-acre house, and it uh, yeah. uh, had a five-acre lawn, and we'd land helicopters on there, and the st- I had two studios, and it was, uh, it was quite a sight.
0: Yeah, quite I a mean, 143, you're 100%. Who knows where it would have gone? Because you had actually incredible success rate. You know,
1: yeah, with, but we were uh, losing money, strangely, in the beginning. And that's when Warner Brothers stepped in and said, You know, the contract says if you lose money, we get to buy you, and so they did. Yeah. Oh well. But Never that's mind. Okay.
0: how long was that? How long was one four three
1: now? How old yeah, is it? How long did
0: no, how how long did you run one four three?
1: Uh I mean I think I'm thinking it was mid nineties to mid two thousand like ninety five to two thousand five, maybe something like that? Yeah. Two thousand ten? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I know it still says on Buble's and Josh's record, it still says 143 records. Yeah, it does, yeah, I know. So yeah. Buble, how did you find Buble? Um, and Josh? Found him at a, found him at a wedding. It was the, it's just one of those great stories, you know, like, he was the wedding singer. He truly was the wedding singer. Oh, really, he was the now. wedding singer? He was the wedding singer. He comes by He was Adam Sandler. Yeah, and, and he was singing... Um, uh, when the shark bites, he's snapping his fingers. And he was like, "I was like, oh my god, it's the, it's the same feeling that I had when I first saw Celine." Right. I was like, "I, I got to have this kid." Now he tells a different version of the story, and I and, and somewhere between our two stories is the truth. But his story is not true, and mine probably isn't either. But I recall saying to him, "You're coming back home to L.A. with me tonight." and I'm going to move you into my guest house. Here's $5,000 to pay your bills, because he had no money, and we're going to stay here until you make an album. That's my side of the story. His side, you'll have to ask him, it's a little bit different, but nevertheless, we, we happily reminisce on it all the time. You, you, you've been married five times. What's, what's that like? That's what I was, the, the notes were put there.
0: <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't count the five, actually. Well, that was it, a
1: it, 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 it means that I don't have that big sprawling house in Malibu anymore, that's what it means. Yeah. I I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Look, you know, I I I won't take the time now, uh, because it's a little bit private. But I can explain them all, in a way that's at least rational for my head. Because if I if I can't rationalize it, I would make myself crazy. You know. Um, So for various reasons, that has led me to Catherine, and uh, this is where I'll spend the rest of my life. There you go. I'm not sure I ever said that before. I don't think I did. Oh,
0: cool. Exclusive on my show. Well, she's uh, kind of special. She's kind of special. She, she really is. I mean, yeah, she, really she really is. is. And who yeah. would? Think, I was looking. At, I sent her a note the other day, and like, it's hard to imagine she had a baby. She's just oh, did you DM right her back? Yeah, DM her. Yeah. She, did she, she? Did she answer you back? Yeah, she did. She did.
1: Oh, good. She's
0: She was. Uh, she looks fantastic. And and how is uh, having your first son?
1: It's going like incredible because she's such a great and natural mom. Um, I get to sleep all night, and um, I get the best of the baby, and he happens to be a really good baby, and um, so we're just as happy as we can be. Yeah. You're very proud to be Canadian, yeah. And you don't.
0: You don't. Would you um, not say that, that you? Fight?
1: Would you, you not say that? Would you not say that you carry the Malaysian flag wherever you go?
0: Oh, 100 yeah. percent. Of all the artists you worked with, I mean, I that's a stupid question, but it has to be asked. Who did you enjoy working with the most?
1: Yeah. The answer I always used to give was Alice Cooper because Alice Cooper was this strange dichotomous character Who I learned a lot from because I wasn't really a rock and roller um, But he would get up in the morning make breakfast for his kids Take them to school kiss his wife. Goodbye go play a round of golf He's like a, was a scratch golfer then he'd come to the studio work really really hard dedicated and then at night he'd go do an arena show and cut chickens' heads off on stage because he was that ghoulish, you know, with all the makeup yeah, yeah, on him. And then the next morning he'd do it all over again. And I just thought there was what a dichotomous character. And he was, was and is such a lovely person. And I get to see him when I do a Muhammad Ali event in Phoenix. And he comes and once in a while he'll jump up on stage. And so he always held the record for being the nicest guy and the most fun that I ever had in the studio. And that was kind of uh, broken. by Seal Seal broke the record broke Alice's record when I did the Seal soul album which was super successful and we had the best time and I just loved working with that unique voice of Seals you know um, he doesn't have the money notes like Celine and Whitney so Mm. I had to wrap my head around a different process but it was just as great a process and I put him in the same category as those singers and he was so much fun so for now he holds the record you. you've never been
0: afraid to travel meet different people you, you know you, I've taken you everywhere and you're just so decent down to earth you love people you know you've come out to Malaysia in Indonesia you've, everyone loves you right you do this amazing well, show most when, everyone.
1: Richard <laughs> Marks doesn't love me but that's another
0: story <laughs> <laughs> well that's his loss
1: you know honestly though Tony and I, I would say the same right back to you because uh, you're the same way it doesn't take that much more effort to be nice than to not be nice
0: yeah 100% I, you know, I always say to my cabin crew it doesn't cost anything to smile you know low cost yeah. doesn't mean uh, low quality and that's why we've won the lo- best low cost airline 11 times in a row because we're just nice I was
1: there I was there and in Paris once you when were you, you accepted the award. the
0: award you accepted it yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot yeah the like awesome. famous Brazilian I mean, footballer I,
1: I have to say that I'm uh, you know I'm proud to be your friend but I'm really a proud from a from close up to know what you've accomplished to see what you've accomplished and you know you had your apprentice and your television run and and you had this great career in the music business where you were loved by everybody everybody wanted to be next to you thank you my brother i miss you Did a lot I,
0: actually just you know spending time with david foster in la is <laughs> it's there's just not enough hours in the day it, <laughs> we're meeting people i've never met
1: well my life is uh never gone where it, I thought it would go Um, time and time again, it's gone to a different place, but there's not much I would redo.
0: You know, I I love that statement. You know, I've, I've, I'll always say if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, and there are many people who would like to hit, drive that bus, um, I've I've lived a great life. Lots of failures, lots of things, but I've always said you live life as though it's the last day of your life. And the mistakes you've made, that's part of life. That makes you the, the better person or appreciate things more. Um, so I 100% echo what what you, what you believe, what you
1: just said. Yeah.
0: What do you want the world to remember, David Foster?
1: Well, I always said that on my tombstone, I'd like to have simply this. He did his best. Ooh. Nice. I, I think nice. that's appropriate. That's you know? nice. I mean, I can't imagine that my songs are going to live on I, you know I mean I want oh, my son I... to be a race car driver but that's you know 15 years uh, from now but that's I, I realize that I could do that if well, I, I want him to be a race car driver I can give him every opportunity to be a race car driver
0: there we go I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm
1: having having owned a Formula 1 team think hard yeah <laughs> I've been watching that have you been watching on, on Netflix the Formula 1 I haven't uh, I haven't but I hear oh, it's
0: fantastic and it's, amazing it's, and, it's Maybe that, that's some painful memories for me there, and expensive yes. memories. <laughs> I'll
1: bet. What was the team that you were involved
0: in? Uh, Lotus and then Caterham, and oh uh, yeah. I mean, look again. It was a, I lost a lot of money. It was uh, we didn't win anything, but I did it. You know, I I sat in the grid with Ferrari yes. and Williams and McLaren and hey and Mercedes it, and Mercedes right. Um, so. It, it was a wonderful thing to do. Um, I wouldn't do it again, but if your son's gonna become a race driver, Uncle Tony's there to help him. Yeah. Tell us about your foundation, which you started in 1986. That says a lot about you because yeah. that's a long time ago for you to start it is. giving giving back. And I know how passionate you yeah. are about it. And I want people to know the other side of David Foster.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it, it is important to me and um, you know, there's no bad charities. There's a thousand great ones. And you don't know when you're going to get struck by being moved so much that you want to plunge in. And, and I was moved with an incident that happened and, and we, we, we help basically the families of children that need organ transplants. And we fill all those holes of, uh, basically what we, you know, the social workers have said about us that we are the one bright spot in a parent's worst day ever. So they get told that their son or daughter needs a heart transplant or a this or a lung transplant or a kidney or a liver and, uh, but then they say, "But there is the David Foster Foundation, and all your expenses will be taken care of. Uh, all, all you have to do is concentrate on your sick child." And uh, it's, gosh, the the feedback we get is, as you can imagine, is extraordinary. But I want to say also that um, I'm not that guy that just lends his name. I mean, I was on a one-hour call tonight. We have a Zoom call tomorrow with the, some of our donors. We have a Zoom calls every Thursday with our donors. We're keeping the ball rolling. We have a goal of. We had a goal of 30 million in the bank as an endowment and we surpassed that. And now we're, uh, our new goal is 50 million, uh, in the bank, $50 million, uh, as an endowment, which will ensure that this foundation will go on long after I'm gone, which is, which is great, but it's been hard work. I've done probably 300 concerts for my foundation. Uh, but it's, it's, it's good work. And, uh, it, you know, it always feels better to give than to take.
0: David, any artist? you would have loved to have worked with, but just haven't had it, the chance to do it.
1: Well, I've always had Sting, and I believe you know him, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we know each other, but we he's never asked me to work with him. He just doesn't need me, quite honestly. But I just love his whole vibe. Uh, but also Stevie Wonder was on that list. And as you may know, you... I did an album with Stevie. Uh, yeah. And its it's never come out and probably never will come out. He's one hell of a legend
0: and producer, producer, one producer that you never worked with. Uh,
1: Well, I would have loved I've spent time. I spent time with George Martin, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in those sessions. I mean, oh, yeah, they've got this Beatles movie coming out. Right. Have you seen it? Yes. Uh, Brian. Brian Grazer is producing, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have not seen it. I saw the trailer. It's amazing. And last, last, last question. What's on your playlist right now? Well, I don't have Spotify and I don't have a playlist, sorry to say, and I don't listen to music. And not for any reason other than back in the day, I didn't listen to much music because I thought it got in the way of what I was trying to do. And I guess that pattern just sort of stuck. So um, Kat and I once in a while will go around the piano, we'll go on YouTube, we'll find a song that we like and we'll learn it and we'll sing it. But I have no playlist, I have no Spotify, I have no iPod, I have no... I have nothing in my phone except my solo album and my Betty Boop stuff, my theatre stuff that I'm working on. Yeah. No playlist.
0: Is Betty Boop still on?
1: Is that...? Yeah. I
0: had had a big two-hour Zoom today about it. Oh, cool. I was in in your flat when you were composing. um, Yeah. For that. The ongoing project. That would be special. That would be special. Make sure I'm there on the opening night. Look, I miss you. Even more now, he is the nicest person, the most down-to-earth, and a true friend. David, it's been an honor. Thank you for giving me so much time. And uh, go go kill some more hits and get that Oscar and get that Broadway out. And uh, love to Catherine. You two are made for each other.
1: I'll play myself out. Thank you, Tony. Love you, brother. Good night. Love you. Bye.